You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Friday, September the 15th. Another lovely day here in TW11 on the eve of the Betfred St. Ledger. Later on in the show, I'll be speaking to Ed Crisford, who with his father Simon saddles Godolphin's chess piece, a lively outsider for some. He'll be ridden by James Doyle. Also be speaking to trainers Jim Goldie, Oliver Cole. We'll catch up with the chief executive of the Racecourse Association, David Armstrong, who answers some of the questions I have posed recently about premierization and also about the Fakenham fixture switch that we dealt with earlier in the week. But first of all, big news broke yesterday. In Ireland that trainer, billionaire businessman and big-time sponsor Luke Comer had had his licence withdrawn for three years and has been ordered to pay nearly €850,000 in fines and costs. And that's because a dozen of his horses tested positive for anabolic steroids. The anabolic steroids concerned methandionone and methyltestosterone, MD and MT. Jane Mangan is the RTE and Racing TV broadcaster that's been following this case. Jane, what are the headlines here? What are the top lines? 12-page document, hard to break it down to just top lines. But what I will say, having read through it, is that despite concrete evidence and number of positive tests, Luke Comer put up quite a case against the IHRB. He brought in doctors and professors from all over the world to give evidence on his behalf. So going back to He Knows No Fear, who was randomly tested post-race at Leopardstown and October 21. He tested positive for both substances that you just mentioned. And following on a month later, they had a random out competition testing where 12 horses tested positive for the same substances at his yard. So that was where the case began. There was four charges brought against Mr. Comer. There's a number of things here. So point one, were the substances concerned administered knowingly or unknowingly? So that was a big part of this case. Was it a accidental contamination or was was it um, administered on purpose? Did Mr. Comer take all reasonable precautions to avoid a rule breach of 96? Did Mr. Comer train the horses at a stud or at a farm that was not licensed by the IHRB? Did Mr. Comer act in a manner that was prejudicial to the integrity, proper conduct and good reputation of horse racing? And finally, what sanctions should the committee impose on Mr. Comer? Now, before all of the listeners turn off, right, I just want to put it out there. If people are not familiar with Luke Comer, he's a billionaire businessman here in Ireland and his horses run at a 3% strike rate this year. He's had eight winners from 277 runners. So anabolic steroids are seen as a performance enhancing drug, but I just want to get it out there. That's his strike rate. Um, if you flick down through the whole thing, there's there's an awful lot to digest here, right? What people will automatically do, they'll go to the end of the novel and you'll see that he has incurred costs of €840,000. 755 of that is legal costs. 60 of that is fines, five grand for each horse that tests positive for the substances. And he's also had his, his license suspended for three years. Now, I know what people are thinking. He's got a son, also called Luke Homer, who has previously trained, who could easily take up his license again. Um, he has an assistant trainer on site, Jim Gorman, who was a previous trainer. And he himself has admitted that he's only in the country three months of the year. 
So if we want to go deeper, we can, Nick, but that's the skeleton. Do you want to put meat on the bones? Yeah, Jane, I do want to drill down a little bit more, particularly in terms of the, the sanctions imposed and the relativity to other sanctions across Europe in the last decade or so. But first of all, want to talk about anabolic steroids themselves, why they are significant, their use in thoroughbred racing and their use in sport. And I sought counsel of senior partner from Rossdale's in Newmarket, Pete Ramsen, and this is what he had to say about anabolics. Morning, Nick. Um, yeah, look, anabolics, uh, you know, there's there's always uh, a lot of interest in anything that might um, improve athletic performance and and uh, things that improve performance are many and varied and have changed over, over the decades. Um, uh, but anabolics are, are the biggie um, and the historical biggie. They're drugs that allow allow an athlete who's taking them or, or been given them um, to bulk up, you know, more hemoglobin, more muscle bulk, uh, more energy output. Um, so they're, they're, when one thinks of uh, things to help performance that have been used um, over time, anabolic steroids are, 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 are sort of the, the top of the list. Uh, it's quite quite an interesting one. And I, I wanted your perspective on this because it's specifically pertinent to to thoroughbred racehorses, I think, because obviously you think about famous cases of anabolic steroids going all the way back to, to Ben Johnson and, and, and beyond that. But with with horses, often, if they're administered, they're administered in, in quite young athletes. So why is that particularly relevant? But, I mean, it's certainly the case that um, despite long detection times for some of these um, steroids, when they're, when they're given early in life, the effects can... Um, can can drive um, boosts in performance long term. So I mean, it's precisely why. So testosterone is a natural anabolic steroid, um, and obviously males have more testosterone than females, and it's precisely why there's a lot of um, consideration of this in the whole transgender ath- athletics um, issue uh, in terms of how long does. Um, early life exposure to testosterone so an anabolic steroid um, result in long-term muscle mass um, hemoglobin levels over and above a female athlete and how long that should be discontinued for before competitions allowed um, in any crossover uh, function so yeah anabolic steroids given early in life can can have a long lasting effect uh, beyond when that might be detectable through through blood or urine sampling and obviously now you're talking about the historic use of anabolic steroids and that's why uh, this case and, and other cases have, have lent on on hair sampling um how how big a move forward is that from a from a veterinary standpoint? Uh, I mean, look, hair sampling's been around for quite some time. I remember when it first came out and started to be um, validated. There was quite a lot of excitement that it might be the best way to detect historic administration of some of these drugs. Um, it, it, it's certainly not. Um, it's it's not a straightforward thing in so much that um, some drugs aren't detectable with hair testing. Um, sometimes short administration of certain drugs isn't detectable at all and, and also about the quality and standardisation of the sampling techniques. So all of those feed into, I think, 
a bit less certainty around uh, results than you might have with traditional forms of testing. But I think um, I think in terms of some of the big drugs um, that are um, that carry a lifelong sanction or that are that are really big no-nos um, in terms of the horse racing regulatory bodies around the world, any detection of those in a hair sample is sufficient to, to raise um, concerns about, uh, uh, you know, administration of those drugs rather than having to pin it down necessarily to exact days or weeks about when, when that drug might have been administered. So that is your, your primer on anabolic steroids. As regards how that relates to this case, Jane, I suppose the key point, and this was a key bone of contention in the case, is reliability of hair sampling. And that is something that Luke Comer invested an awful lot of time and money in trying to to disprove that yeah, the hair sampling was a reliable guide to uh, the, the positive um, nature of these horses. Yeah, for sure. He There was a lot of his doctors and professors brought in to testify as regards the reliability of the hair samples. So a little bit further down the, the piece, it says Mr. Comer has admitted that traces of the prohibited substances were found to be present in his horses in relation to charges one and two. But he car- categorically denies that either he or any of his staff involved uh were doping the animals, right? He he maintained that the traces found were very small. That was accepted by Dr. Lynn Hillier. He sought to undermine the board's results based on testing hair samples, claiming that hair was not a reliable um, as, stand, as a standalone matrix. Levels of prohibited substances could not be quantified. And he basically, a lot of his, his team really focused in on trying to make this um, not a reliable uh, case based on just hair samples. But it went on to say the committee has outlined that hair is a recognised accredited matrix in the International Federation of Horse Racing, so IFHA, and the Association of Official Racing Chemists, so the AORC. Right, go on, bear with me now, stay with me. It has been used, hair samples have been used in Ireland for testing since 2016. An MT and MD do not show up in blood or urine samples after a short period because they are very, uh, they are clear very rapidly. They clear very rapidly from the body, but deposit in hair. So accordingly, hair samples can show traces of these substances long after they have been administered or ingested, and that's why they're used in this country because even if it's left your bloodstream or your urine system, it will deposit in the hair. Yeah, and there's no doubt, Jane. This is a a heavyweight encounter between the IHRB's legal team and Coma's team, because you can sense the rhetoric of frustration in the IHRB's summary. For example, the respondent maintains he's not guilty of any misconduct. The committee has found he's in breach of a number of rules. His submission that what the committee has found is that he's not guilty of any deliberate act is a mischaracterization of the findings. And he is somebody who has ultimately admitted liability albeit having fought as they say rather doggedly in the in the interim this i found quite interesting and it it answers the question as to why the sentence is three years and not longer than that on the evidence presented no convincing case was made out for environmental contamination on the other hand there was no direct evidence of deliberate administration while the board invited the committee to infer from the evidence 
that in the absence of environmental contamination it should conclude that the substances were deliberately administered, this would result in a finding of the most serious kind requiring evidence. And of course, there is no smoking gun, Jane. And that is really why the committee's hands have been somewhat tied in terms of sentencing. The committee, despite all of the time, effort, money and mind power that was invested in this case, were unable to prove that it was intentional or even that his environment was contaminated. It was difficult. Like this, as you say, it's a little bit unprecedented, very much in this country. Like he got a five grand fine for each of the 12 horses that tested positive, but his means were taken into account. He was ordered to pay 80% of the IHRB's legal fees, which amounted to 755000 And uh, it, it was just... He he put up a feverant case to try and defend himself, and uh, it made for very interesting reading. But despite all of the the doctors, professors, and great minds from around the world, a positive is a positive, and that's what the case, the the committee had to just run with, even though they couldn't actually decipher how they came to be positive. Jane, let's try and assess the significance of this. Uh, finally, you know, reputationally, not just for. Lucoma, but for the IHRB, for Irish racing as a whole, and to the, the extent to which this has reached beyond our parish, as these sort of doping stories often do. This is a very high-profile case. It was on mainstream media news last night. It was on RT News last night. So um, it's it's just... it. We have heard murmurs and whispers about this case for well over a year in this country, waiting for it to land. It landed yesterday... It seems the IHRB have a watertight case. They have covered every corner. They have been challenged on everything by the defence and they have stood up and made it count. So um, I would commend the report that was published and indeed the IHRB committee for what they have uh, presented because it was a challenging case for both sides, but it was a very important one to get right. Right onwards and to the racing this weekend. Well, you don't need to be that sharp-eyed to realise that Desert Hero, who's attracted plenty of column inches this week, was only a neck in front of another St. Ledger contender when they met in the Gordon Stakes at Goodwood. And that contender was the Godolphin-owned Simon and Ed Crisford Train, son of Nathaniel. Chess piece. Ed Crisford joins me on the line now. Well, one thing we can guarantee, Ed, is that there'll be no lack of stamina on his part. But is he classy enough and good enough to win a St. Ledger? Yeah, no, that's what he's all about, stamina. He's a Nathaniel out of a Chamberlain mare that stays really well. And I think, you know, it, he has slightly been running over shorter trips than we, we'd wanted to, bar the Queen's Vars. But that day, the ground was just a bit quick for him. And he still ran with huge credit. But he is all about sort of soft ground and a trip. And the St. Ledger should have that on Saturday. Um, although he does have about four lengths to make up on sort of our figures. Um, with the top-rated horses in the race. So if he can improve, he will be in the mix, but he's got to improve. That's quite an interesting observation. You think he's got several lengths to make up. I said he was just a neck behind Desert Hero. It suggests to me that you're rating that great voltage of form significantly in advance of the Gordon Stakes form. Is that is that a reasonable inference to draw from what you just said? I, I think it is reasonable, yes. I think you know, you've got to rest him there as well. Um, who loves the soft ground. Um, and I think, you know, those two at the top of the market are going to be, 
you know we are we do need yeah we do need a few lengths to make up on them but there's no reason we are an improving horse still lightly race horse with the soft ground and the the trip that we want um there's no reason that we can't improve um you know an extra few lengths and given that long straight and his style of galloping are you happy to let james doyle be pretty bold on him I think you can be bold, but it is a long straight, and it you know it's going to be a proper grinding test, especially with the softer conditions. And I think it's going to be drying out today and tomorrow. I don't think there's any more rain due, and it'll just be a bit sticky and dead. And if that is the case, it is going to be a proper grinders match. So I think you're going to have to, you know, you don't you don't want to be using up too much energy early, but you can definitely be a bit bold on him for sure. You've got the right man on your side. I've just seen he's had 10 winners from his last 30 runners. Uh, Ed, just thinking further ahead and, and beyond the, the St. Ledger, I, I noted that uh, Algiers is on his on his way back to the to the race course and, and might be bound for California. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm literally just about to get in the car to... Uh, he's about to have a racehorse gallop at Chelmsford. So <clears throat> all being well there, um, we're going to hopefully send him out to the Woodward in a couple of weeks um, at Aqueduct um, as a prep run. And, you know, but the tracks are very, can be very different to Maidan in America. So we just need to see if he can act on the dirt there. And if he go, comes through that test and he acts on the dirt and he's in good form, then yes, I mean, the Breeders' Cup is, is, is on the cards. Okay, so you we go to the Woodward in an open year. He could just be an interesting player in the in the, in the Breeders' Cup Classic. I mean, that said, he acted on the Maidan dirt extremely well. It's not as, it's not like the Saudi dirt, which is nothing like American dirt. No, exactly. I mean, the Maidan dirt is is more similar, um, especially to the New York tracks. So I guess we'll see how we go. And I think if we were going to go Breeders' Cup, it'd be more mile. You know, I think he's way more effective over a mile. At, well, certainly in that matching challenge, he was very, very effective. And that last, that last sort of furlong, half furlong in the Dubai World Cup, was, he was he, it just called him out of it. I, I think. So that the dirt mile for him, possibly after the Woodward. Good luck with him. Good luck, particularly on on Saturday, Ed. A huge moment for you and and your father going going into a classic for Godolphin as well. I'm sure the significance has not been lost on anyone. No, no, absolutely not. No, it's it's great and. Yeah, to have a, a horse good enough in the Royal Blue Silks is fantastic. So let's, let's hope he can run a good race and we'll be cheering on for sure. All right, that was Ed Crisford, co-trainer of Chesspiece. Jane Mangan is still with me. Jane, you, you confidently selected Continuous earlier in the week on the podcast and you've given your reasons. Has Chesspiece got any shot of picking up some uh, pieces? Yes, if anybody thinks Desert Hero has a chance and this guy's only neck behind him, uh, on the Goodwood, Goodwood Gordon Stakes run. So, yes, he absolutely does. We saw Nathaniel have a, a, a tough winner yesterday in the Group 2 with Sumo Sam in the Park Hill, and his horses stay. There's no doubt about that. But um, Frankie's changed. Ryan stayed the same. It's uh, it's an intriguing renewal of the St. Ledger. Well, you mentioned Sumo Sam winning the Park Hill yesterday. Beautiful ride from Ross Ryan from the front, I thought, on a a filly with a monstrous amount of ability. She run, ran in the colours of, of Snurge. Snurge was the maiden who won the St. Ledger back in 1990, 33 years later, in those Arbib silks. Uh, a very talented filly strikes for Paul 
and now Oliver Cole, sharing the licence with his father, the man who trained Snurge, of course. Oliver's with me now. I guess that in itself, Ollie must have given you a, a fair bit of satisfaction. It was incredible, really. Just the, just the way, um, you know, A, to win, win the Philly St. Ledger in those colours, having won it with Snurge, the first millionaire all those years ago. And just to win it like the way she did, we thought she, I thought she was going to get swallowed up a, a, furlong, a furlong out, but she just came back and battled, and Ross had told me that she was sort of idling in front. I mean, we haven't got to the bottom of her by the look of it, and she's a really, really exciting horse, not just this year, but going into next year when she strengthens up. We've got the... Uh, pre-royal error in France to go for the Group 1 uh, Phillies Mile 6 race so that'll be her next target and um, and then we'll put her away for next year but you know we're really excited to have a, a, another horse of this calibre. Ollie, I was very struck with an interview you did with Lydia after Goodwood when you said that you know people had told you to go quietly maybe put her away not run her again now she's a multiple stakes winner at a high level and, and looking like she might start favourite for a Group 1 do you take a bit of personal satisfaction from that? Yeah, I mean, I, I do, but you know, we see the whole we see the whole picture. She's always shown she's got a lot of ability at home, and there's never been a reason to stop. She's never got sore shins. She's never had any problems, and so the signs were there to kick on. I mean, you know, she is a big horse, and uh, you know, other trainers might see it differently, but you know, we normally kick on with with horses until they show they show signs of immaturity or they look very weak she arguably some people she might look weak but you know we, we see it differently i mean i think we've had that approach and i've been taught to have that approach with my father because he's kicked on with a a lot of horses that arguably a lot of trainers wouldn't have kicked on with i mean barcher for example the one at royal ascot he was 16 1 16 2 and the underbitter of barcher was um anthony bromley and he was gonna store him so you know, I, I don't think there was, you know, in, in our eyes, there was ever a reason not to uh, push on with her. As, you know, we, we brought her out first time last year over seven at Newmarket. So, you know, people see things differently. Um, before you go, uh, Ollie, and a great result yesterday, I, I just wanted to know what, what of Royal Scotsman, the horse who ran so well in the, in the Guineas at the beginning of the year, excellent two-year-old from, from last year. Is he on the comeback trail? He's got bone bruising. Um, and he obviously had bone bruising in Ireland and then St. James's Palace. So he wasn't letting himself go. So now we've, we've finished him for the year. He'll be out next year. Okay. Uh, and is he, he's, he's, he, you're confident he can come back and get over that? Yeah, I am. I mean, he's a very, very good horse. Um, bone bruising normally is just a bit of a kind of an immaturity type thing. Maybe he's gone through a bit of growing spurt this year and it's just, just got to him. But... Next, you know, he's a seriously good horse and arguably is a bit unlucky in the, in the, in the Guineas. Well, the chief supporting race to the uh, St. Ledger, uh, from a handicapping point of view anyway, is the Portland, which has run over five and a half furlongs. It was won last year. I said the, the race was awarded last year in the stewards' room to Call Me Ginger, who's got a fantastic chance again, once again ridden by Amy Woff for trainer Jim Goldie. Now, get this for a bit of 
um, bulger-like home production. Jim trained the Sire Orientor, fantastic horse. Remember him winning a Shergar Cup under David Flores. Uh, Dam Primo Heights, also trained by Jim, also bred by Jim, who's also trained five of her winning siblings, and he's with me now. That that must make you very proud when you see this horse turn out for the 52nd time. Real homegrown star. He's, uh, he certainly is. Uh, in fact, uh, he, yeah, I was actually watching an interview with you with uh, when the Silver Cup with Gia Jamali, which mm. is out of the granny of uh, by uh, Compton Place, which is out of the granny to... Uh, call me ginger so it's, keep it in the family as supposed to speak no it's uh, we've been quite lucky to breed a lot of nice horses over the years and uh, he's one of the best ones he is I mean you you take me back to Gio Jamali he he ran I don't know 60 or 70 times as well and a lot of the family have Blazing Heights I think ran 60 times this horse is is turning out again, and it just just keeps going and keeps going. I mean, what what is it about about them that that makes them so hardy and tough? Um, probably a lesson we learned with uh, Jack Dexter, and he managed injuries so as a two year old, and we never ran him as a two year old, and so we basically we don't do the two year old job. With, Try and we'll probably train them as two year olds, you know, they're all trained as two year olds, and we maybe give them one run, but certainly we don't aim to have a campaign. So we, we try and do pick up the, the problems that two year olds have, which then impact on their career, don't they? You know, so it's uh, eh, we get a lot of mileage out of them, you know, there's old uh, Sir Chauvelon still winning at uh, 11 year old you know uh, winning a 50,000 pound handicap which is a bit of doing you know but uh, but that is the secret it's, it's really uh, you, you've got to temper the steel as a two year old but uh, don't overfire it so to speak you know so you, you, have, you put strength in their legs but don't put brittleness in their legs so you, you then can continue to train them and they can stand racing and Orientor, who you who you raced, he I've just looked it up. He ran nearly eighty times as well. Yes, I, well, we, 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 we managed to give him sore shins. He's probably the best I've ever trained, eh, Orientor. But we were rookie trainers when we got him, and eh, when you get a very good horse, eh, you're inclined to run him, you know. And eh, eh, you know, we gave him sore shins, and we had to give him a break. And when he come back. He was a soft ground specialist and, uh, he, you know, ended up the season rate at 86. And when he eventually won his maiden, it was the, the biggest canter job you'd ever see. So, so. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, the Orienter was fortunate enough to put me in contact with likes of Kieran Fallon and some great jockeys, and which really put us in the map. You know, and David Flores, you know, one of the great rides you'll see is him winning the. Uh, you know the the Shergar Cup, as you said. You know it was a, a lasty first job. You know, as as Colby Ginger was uh, in last year's uh, Portland. You know we dropped in last, and uh, we eventually got it in the stewards' room or the uh, stewards' inquiry. But probably, yeah, I think we we, we won on merits on the day as well. But uh, 
it was it was having watched it probably a five hundred times. Uh, uh, I knew the fractions, and it was one of these. Uh, uh, you know, it was a it was a typical hare and tortoise ride, wasn't it? You know, we, and it's interesting. He's he's drawn beside us again. Uh, 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 the, uh, but we're better off at the weights this year, so uh, I can't pronounce his name. Chindic or what? How do you pronounce it? Uh, Ch- Chipstead. Chipstead. Uh, he's uh, he's been slightly up in the handicap more than us, so we're better off at the weights for getting beat a, a diminishing neck, uh, which then we turned round and our stewards, you know, in an appeal. So it was uh, uh, hopefully it's just between the twos again, but I don't suppose that will work out the same. Yeah, it's a it's a handy little race, that's for sure. Now, Jim, you've had thirty-two winners since the beginning of July, which, going back as far as my record stretch, uh, is your most productive spell in your in your career, in, in, in numerically anyway, and the strike rate's very high too. Uh, you've always been a prolific producer of winners. Why so many this time? Um, I think uh, it's oof. A lot of experience for of doing it over the years, and we do things that, as you say, why you know how do our horses run as often? You know, we're, uh, it's that you know we, we feed a certain diet and we feed them a certain way, and we we give them probiotics and different things just to keep their stomach right. You know, and I always equate you know that they a feeding horses to stoking a boiler, you know, and if you obviously, you can give them loads of feed and get a result, but you have to keep the boiler and, and you know, if you, you need to give them breaks, like decoking the boiler, whereas we try and keep them just below that level and, uh, you know, so we're, it's, it's basically it's good stable management, but we've been doing it for a lot of years and uh, uh, both sons uh, understand it and we work as a team you know I was just looking through you know the feed list there uh, and you know and dare I say giving them electrolytes as well and making sure that you know they recover well from the race so you can move on you know I think that I've, I've done a few remarkable things in my career but one of them was three days with Sound of Iona last year you know she was second at Windsor in racing league uh, one at Ascot a Phillies race and I'd miscalculated and she ran off of I think it was at 85 and was third beating the neck by Mum's Tipple you know which is for her was a career best but uh, you know best run ever in her life you know and to do that after three days racing it's uh, uh, but that's done by feeding and management of electrolytes and uh, you know, it's not peaking for one day; it's peaking for three days. Jim, it's always fascinating to chat to you. Thanks so much for for sharing that insight with me, um, and uh, all the best with Call Me Ginger tomorrow. Hey, thanks, mate. All the best. All right. Well, we've been trying to keep abreast of the of the fixture list for twenty twenty four in the UK and find out uh, how we're getting on with the fixtures and funding and the move towards premierization if that's what you want to call it david armstrong is the chief executive of the racecourse association he's very kindly taking time he's on his way to doncaster he's at king's cross station so 
we're going to battle with the announcements in the background, David. No problem at all. It all makes it all the more authentic. When are we going to get this fixture list? Well, the, the target is to try and have it uh, produced by the end of September, uh, which isn't too far away now. So a couple more weeks to go, a couple more bits and pieces to sort out, and then I'm hoping we'll be there by the end of September. Uh, it's not never going to be straightforward. This uh, so end of August, Richard Wayman was saying beginning of September, then it was the middle of September, now it's the end of September. You see the way I'm thinking here. Well, no, and, I, and I, you're right to highlight the complexity. Uh, there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of changes. Obviously, we have to work carefully with our, our partners at the levy board to make sure they're comfortable with what they're funding as well. So there's quite a lot of steps in that process, and it's just taken a bit longer than we would have liked, really. And what about the, the small independent race courses? We heard John Joe Sanderson on the show last week, sort of in the spirit of conciliation, but wanting to make sure that there was a compensation given to those smaller courses. How, how far down the road have you got with that? I think that's that's moving forward well. I think the, the it's it, I probably wouldn't describe it as compensation myself. Uh, I don't think that's quite the right word. Um, what we're looking at is a mechanism that might boost uh prize money and rate cards in fixtures that move so that the race course is helped in that fashion um but nevertheless you know i think we are moving forward towards a solution there as well um when you say you're moving forward towards a solution what's that solution likely to look like can't really say just yet nick because we need to make sure that we've got all all the uh, stakeholders aligned both internally and at the levy board before we can be too clear on that but um, it, it'll it'll be it'll become clearer in the weeks ahead. And I, would, if you sit here today, are you confident that that ori- the original um, bones of that plan to clear Saturday afternoons is going to shape up exactly as it was as it was planned? Well, probably not exactly as we first thought, but it's going to be ninety eight percent of what we first thought. Obviously, in the final stages, there are some fixture moves that take place and some final changes that take place. So you can't guarantee that you'll be you'll come up with the final version will be the same as the first version that you thought of. But it's going to deliver the, the, the strategic aim of what we're trying to achieve. What happens if the levy boards say they, they won't provide the money that you need because the, the plan isn't sound enough? Well, I mean, that's obviously within their, you know, their rights to do so. We had, we had a levy board meeting yesterday, which was positive and supportive. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll probably continue that conversation with the levy board over the next two or three weeks till we get to the finishing line. Uh, but it was a positive and supportive conversation. Just wanted to touch on the issue surrounding the, the move of the New Year's Day fixture away from Fakenham uh, and Southall taking that, that fixture. Spoke about it a little uh, on the pod earlier in the week. From an RCA perspective, how do you view that? You're a member of the commercial committee that, that signed this off. Yes, well, what, you, what you've got actually is with faking them is it's not directly part of the strategy work that we were just talking about a little earlier. It's part of the normal um, moves that take place each year to allocate the BHA fixtures. Uh, and that was a fixture that was allocated to faking them for a number of years as a BHA fixture. So obviously from an RCA point of view, um, you know, we've got a foot in both camps. You know, we represent Southall as well as, as Fakenham. So uh, what we're much more anxious to ensure happens is that the process that is set out by the fixture policy of the BHA is accurately followed. And so when Fakenham lost out to Southall for that particular day, Fakenham chose to appeal, which is their right to do so. And that appeal was then heard by the BHA board. Um, effectively, it seems as though this was simply decided on what prize money could be given on one day. The contention that I had was that it wasn't being looked at 
in the round. It was being looked at in isolation, not necessarily in the context of Fakenham's overall contribution relative to what they are able to provide as a small country, local independent racecourse. Southall obviously part of a, a bigger group that has the leverage and power to be able to put itself on a high day or holiday should it wish to do so, because it's got the um, the infrastructure to be able to do that. Was that taken into account? I mean, there are a number of criteria that are taken into account. And obviously, I'd, I'd, I'd point you to the BHA's own, um, you know, pronounced, uh, a statement on the matter as well to explain how the decision was made all the factors that are, are relevant were discussed um, and the the difference in prize money was substantial so that that obviously had a quite an influence but it wasn't the only factor that was considered okay what other factors were considered well in the fixture policy and, and actually I'd, I'd probably direct you to my good colleague Richard Wayman for the the, the bible on the, the fixture policy uh, but in the fixture policy, other factors such as geography that you mentioned are taken into account as well. All right. And then my thanks to David Armstrong and to all my guests today. Uh, Jane Mangan is still with me. Jane, have you got a tip for today? Yes, the 225 is the Flying Children's an ultra-competitive renewal of the two-year-old race. And I like the gifts. That's pretty obvious. She, he didn't quite live up to the to the hype in the Nunthorpe, but so many two-year-olds don't do that. I think Mick Appleby's Mulcombe Stakes and Windsor Castle Stakes when they're coming back to winning ways under Tom Marquand in the Flying Chillers at 2.25. Jane, thanks a lot. Thank you very much for listening. That was Friday, September the 17th. It wasn't. Thank you for listening. That was Friday, September the 15th. Don't forget, Charlotte will be back this evening, shortly after nine o'clock, with a roundup of all the interviews uh, into tomorrow's St. Ledger. And then I'll be back on Monday. But from all of us, it's bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.